If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvellous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant & Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the second of our August 2012 podcasts. This week, the podcast comes again from the Tower of London. It is the second half of our lecture event on the history of the British Army and the Royal Navy. Last time we heard Saul David explain how the army helped to make Britain great. Now it's the turn of naval historian Sam Willis to tell us about the maritime branch of the country's armed services. If you like what you hear, don't forget you can find plenty more great history content in our print publication, BBC History Magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. And you can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we're also available on the Kindle and the iPad. For more details of all of that, and for great subscription deals, please visit our website, historyextra.com. And you can, of course, get in touch with us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash historyextra, and on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash historyextra. Earlier in the year, we ran a series of lectures at the Tower of London. For the first of those events, historians Saul David and Sam Willis considered the histories of the Royal Navy and the British Army, and argued the importance of each in transforming Britain into a global power. 
after Saul's fascinating talk on the army had concluded. Sam Willis stepped up to the podium. I'm not going to bash the army, and it was nice to see so many of you put your hands up thinking that the Navy was, was influential in putting Britain on the map. What I want to do today is to raise a couple of different things for you guys to think about. The first of which is that I want to try and explain how the Navy was influential, but not in a way that you necessarily suspect. And it's uh, an idea which should uh, generate a bit more thought and, and hopefully some interesting questions. The second point I want to make is about the necessary skill of the sailors actually involved. Because I'll be talking a bit about what the perception was of the people at the time rather than my perception as a historian. And the perception at the time, certainly among the sailors, was that they very much had a bigger role to play in putting England on the map. So it's thinking a little bit about why they thought that beyond the obvious. <coughs> I'd like to make one very important point to start with, and that was that the wars of this period were won by political negotiation. Now, to have a position of strength was all important in such political negotiation, and one of the things that gave you strength was territory. The only way you could win territory is with an army. And I want you to bear that in mind, because everything I'm going to say has that one major proviso. You can win battles, you can win campaigns, you can launch amphibious assaults across the Atlantic, but you're not going to get anywhere unless you've got a big fat bit of territory you can use to negotiate. I think it's a little bit unfair having this lecture in the Tower of London, because of all of the different locations you could possibly choose, there isn't one which is less supportive of the Royal Navy. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be talking about that a little later on, actually. Uh, the one obvious connection of the Tower is that it locked up naval officers every now and again for not performing as they were expected to do. Uh, this, is, this is Rob Fuller. He's a yeoman warder. Now, he's important because he's a naval officer. This happened in 2011. He's the first naval officer to become a yeoman warder. Four years after they created the first female yeoman warder. <laughs> so that's how much they hate the Navy here. Uh, he's uh, having a lovely time uh, as a yeoman warder, banging on about how important the senior service is and how unjust it is that there were no naval officers who were part of the yeoman troop. In fact, they're so down on the Navy that they make the Navy come and deliver a little barrel of rum once a year, it's called the Constable's Jews, and it's given by the Navy to the Constable of the Tower of London. So we could have had this in Chatham's beautiful 17th century dockyard with its rope walk and its commissioner's houses. We could have had it in Portsmouth or Plymouth. No, we're here. So I think we automatically should get a kind of a handicap system of at least 10 votes <laughs> for the Royal Navy. So who put, who put Britain on the map and why? Well, I'm always quite keen on asking the people at the time before we start imposing our perceptions and our views. Uh, this is Vice Admiral Philip Patton in 1801, really important year, I'll come back to that. The sailor of our wars with France had so much esprit de corps for his own branch of the national service that he genuinely and heartily, not to say unreasonably, despised all that pertained to soldiering in pipe clay. Pipe clay being the white stuff that soldiers use to whiten all of their equipment and gear. Now, this is not an isolated event. 
In fact, I was reading in the British Library last week and I came across an absolutely brilliant satire of the army which was written during the American War of Independence. Advice to a general. As no other person in your army is allowed to be possessed of a single idea, it would be ridiculous on any occasion to assemble a council of war. A <laughs> uh, principal part of your duty is to see justice distributed among your troops. If simple as military law is, you should be entirely unacquainted with it. You may substitute your own goodwill and pleasure, and that must be justice. For a commander-in-chief is as infallible as the Pope, and being the king's representative, he can do no wrong any more than his royal master. Advice to a private soldier. As a private soldier, you should consider all your officers as your natural enemies, with whom you are in a perpetual state of warfare. And my favourite, if your comrade deserts, you may safely sell all your kit and charge him with having stolen it. <laughs> because if he's caught and denies it, nobody believe, will believe him. <laughs> now, the, the, the Royal Navy is by no means uh, set aside from such sort of ridiculous stuff. And I also came across a story once from the, the 17th century of an admiral who had been presented with a problem of uh, one of his sailors had been caught having sex with a turkey. <laughs> now, his solution was to hang both the sailor and the turkey, which I think is a little unfair on the turkey. But it's probably quite difficult socially to get over that if you are a turkey. I don't know. So, um, th there are two ways of looking at it, but sailors, the important point is that sailors generally thought they were more important and they were better. And there was a, a fair amount of ridicule surrounding the army, particularly in 1801. It's really important, this, that date, because the Royal Navy was in the middle of a dramatic period of success. In the 22 years or so between 1794 and 1815, the Royal Navy was as dominant a military power as any in the history of the world. In that period... The Navy lost five frigates, one 54-gunner, a 50-gunner, and 16... Sorry, five 74-gunners, a 54-gunner, a 50-gunner, and about 16 or 17 frigates. They lost no three-decked warships, the, the most important uh, ships in the fleet. Her enemies lost 139 ships of the line and nine three-deckers the most important ships of the fleet. They also lost over 240 frigates. It all began in 1794, at the glorious 1st of June. Um, this was at a time when France was in utter chaos. They were ruled by the Jacobin political sect. They were under the reign of terror. The streets were running with blood. <coughs> The French really needed a convoy, a grain convoy, to come across from America, and the British were sent out to seize it. The French Navy was sent out to protect the convoy. Now, what happened was that the French lured the British fleet away from the convoy. And so the French did their job, in fact. But the, they fought after three or four days of circling each other in the middle of the Atlantic. It's named after the date, as opposed to a cape like Cape Trafalgar, because it was fought so far away from land. But at the end, the, uh, the British uh, sunk or destroyed seven ships of the line. 
of the French Navy. Uh, this is a, a wonderful painting. It was painted by a chap called Nicholas Pocock, who was a professional maritime artist, who was actually there. So it's one of the most realistic images of naval warfare to have come down from the 18th century. Usually, professional maritime artists were poking around in London and they had a rough idea of, of what to paint, but they didn't witness it themselves and very few of them were actually sailors. Pocock was a sailor and he was there. Um, this is the battle of, uh, between the Brunswick and the Vengur here, just as the Brunswick is caught between two French ships. Notice how the ships are rolling, that's all very realistic, and the huge amount of smoke, which made visibility extraordinarily difficult. So it starts off in 1794, this run of victories with seven ships. And they started to bring back these amazing relics from the battles. Um, this is a boarding flag from one of the French ships saying, Sailors of the Republic or Death. Now, three years later, and the British were in a fairly serious spot of trouble because the Spanish had decided to join with the French. The British had been driven out of the Mediterranean entirely. John Jarvis was blockading, or trying to blockade, the coast of Cadiz. That was a terrible storm and the British were all blown off station. At the same time, a huge French fleet was trying to come out through the Straits of Gibraltar and get to Cadiz. They were escorting four Mercury ships. Mercury is very important in transforming the base silver which came from the mines of South America into the coin which drove the Spanish economy. They were caught by the British as they tried to get back into Cadiz. A much, much larger Spanish fleet was attacked by a smaller British fleet um, also worth bearing in mind that the, the Spanish ships were larger as well as the fleet was bigger. But the British still managed to secure four extremely big Spanish ships of the line. So this was just three years after the glorious 1st of June. So by now the British have beaten the French at the glorious 1st of June. They've beaten the Spanish at the Battle of St Vincent. They took only four ships, but two of them were these wonderful uh, first-rate ships, uh, three-deckers, 112 guns, real symbols of majesty. So we've defeated two enemies, now what's going to happen next? Well, what happens is that the French invade Holland, and they create the Batavian Republic. And they have this wonderful flag here, which is as much French as it is Dutch. Um, this, is the, this is the Dutch lion cowering at the feet of the figure of liberty, with her, complete with her liberty pole. So, the Batavian Republic were anxious to bring the war back to Britain and they sent a fleet out to sea. Now Duncan, this very tall dashing Scotsman, uh, had been blockading the Dutch coast, he'd gone back to England and he quickly set sail and he caught the Dutch just as they were trying to get back into port because their admiral knew that even though his political masters had sent him to sea that it was basically going to be something of a suicide mission. Duncan caught him he attacked in a way that was very like the Battle of Trafalgar, much better known. So you have one fleet and then a two-pronged attack at right angles to the enemy fleet. In fact, that's exactly what happened at Trafalgar. It happened by accident um, at Camperdown. Um, but they, then they did that, they split up the Dutch fleet, and he took eight ships of the line. So 1794, they beat the French. 1797, they beat the Spanish. And again, they've beaten the Dutch. So there are three different enemies, and they've been all walloped in all of the battles. What happens next? This is one of my favourite of all maritime relics. It's in the National Maritime Museum. It looks like something a mad inventor has built, or something that's fallen off titty-titty-bang-bang. Bang. Uh, what it actually is is a lightning conductor. 
um, from the mainmast of uh, the French flagship Lorient, which is blowing up here at the Battle of the Nile in 1798. Napoleon had decided to attack India, and he was going to do it via Egypt. Nelson had been blockading off Toulon, and they knew that something was planned, but they didn't really know what or where. The British were blow, blown off station. The French, in a huge invasion force, managed to escape. They managed to land all of their troops in Alexandria. There was no space in Alexandria for a huge fleet of warships, however, so that made a real problem for the French fleet. What do they do with their ships? So they took them to Abukir Bay, just down the coast. Now, theoretically, they could have anchored their ships very nicely in a nice, tidy situation. There were shore fortifications. They were quite um, uh, close to the shore. There was good holding ground. But they didn't anchor in a very sensible way. They anchored in a way that allowed their ships to swing around on a single anchor. When the British finally caught up with the French, they realised how they were positioned and they realised that they could put their ships inside, in between the French fleet and the shore. That meant that they could be doubled. You could have a British ship on either side of a French ship. That's what happened, and they pounded away at each other. A lot of the French sailors were ashore. They were doing the logistical sport for the army in Egypt, so they were unprepared. Um, a lot of the gun ports on one side were all blocked up with, uh, with um, a lot of the logistics and, and the, the, the luggage for the army, basically. And there weren't very many sailors to fight the guns. Um, it was complete carnage. Uh, at the very, very peak of the battle, the French flagship exploded, catapulting the lightning conductor into the, uh, into the sky, which then floated past Nelson's ship and was picked up by a sailor, and it was given to Nelson. Now, Nelson filled up his house with stuff, with relics of his victories. They were everywhere. And we know that he kept this in the porch, <coughs> probably next to his wellies. So... This is one of the first things you would see if you walked into Nelson's house, which is really interesting. I mean, in essence, Nelson here was the, the human embodiment of a lightning strike. It was a force from God. It was completely unstoppable. But at the same time, it's important because the French ships had these lightning conductors and the British didn't. It was one of the very few examples of French technological advancement or French uh, better ship design than the British. The British had a system whereby... <coughs> this is permanent. This screwed onto the top of the mast. There's a copper rod that runs right the way down through the hull to the sea. The British had a system whereby they, if, if the sky looked a bit pokey and they thought there was going to be a thunderstorm, they'd quickly send some sailors up with a with a, a chain, a copper chain, and then they would dangle it down the rigging and kind of get in the way of everything and swing around a bit, and then they'd attach it to a bit of copper which went down through to the hull. The other problem is that the British were all extremely superstitious, and they thought that by rigging this chain that was actually going to make them more susceptible to a lightning strike. <laughs> so they never did it. Uh, which meant that very many more British ships were destroyed by lightning. You don't want to be struck by lightning if you've got your bows of the ship stacked to the rafters with gunpowder. This sort of thing happens. So, um, we're back with France now. So we've got the French revolutionaries of 1794 who are very different to the Napoleonic French of 1798. So I think you should consider them as two different enemies. So 1794, we've got the revolutionaries. We've got the Spanish in 1797. We've got the Dutch in 1797. We've got the Napoleonic French in 1798. Beaten, 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 beaten. And there's more. Now this brings us up to 1801, which is the date of that very important quote with which I began the talk. 
The problem now is the Danes. Now, notice a very important thing about this. is actually, however many times we beat these enemies, they keep on coming back. There's a really important lesson there. So you can wallop an enemy at sea, but you don't end the war. People don't often usually think about that. They think of all these really important battles, but they don't actually consider it in the long sort of duration of it and be aware that all of these battles are strung together for the simple fact that naval battles didn't win wars. They helped win wars in a way that we're only just starting to understand. So the problems are Danes. So we've been beating Napoleon, but Napoleon hasn't been stopping at all. He's now basically waging an economic war. Now, the Russians have decided to get together as part of an armed neutrality. What they wanted to do was to be allowed to trade in the crucial maritime Baltic stores, um, canvas, uh, flax, um, hemp for rigging. All of this stuff came from the Baltic, especially the pine masts from those sort of wonderful Baltic forests. Everyone needed all of this stuff from the Baltic. The French needed it, the Spanish needed it, the Dutch needed it, the British needed it. The Danes wanted to be able to trade with anyone. We didn't want the Danes to trade with anyone apart from us. So they formed an armed neutrality. We said, this isn't good enough to the Danes, and you've got to stop doing it. And we decided to try and force their hand. The problem is, is that anything we could do was countermanded by the Russian threat, who could simply launch an attack and take away any Danish territory that he wanted. Another problem was a kind of complex relationship between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway at the time. In 1801, Norway was part of Denmark, but the Swedes wanted Norway back. Any weakening of anyone's fleet, they all had fleets, the Russians, the Danes, the Swedes, uh, would, would dramatically alter this very precarious balance of power. So the British went and attacked, and they said to the Danes, we are going to attack, we're going to completely wallop you, unless you stop this armed neutrality. They said, our hands are tied, we can't do anything about it. So the British attacked, huge victory, Something like 11 ships get captured. So let's go back over it again. You've got the revolutionaries of 1794, the Spanish of 1797, the Dutch of the Batavian Republic of 1797, the Napoleonic French of 1798, and now the Danes in 1801. Now, throughout this whole period, I mean, the, the most recent thing that the army had done is try and attack Ferrol. And they were landed there very graciously by the navy, and it was all very good. And the army landed, and they marched up, and they decided it was too much, and they marched back to the ships. So this period of utter military dominance by the Navy was exactly the time of that quote which I began everything with in 1801. Oh, there was more. I forgot even to mention this guy. Salmarez, James Salmarez, off Gibraltar um, in July 1801, and he captured two Spanish first rates. So there's another one there. <coughs> so there's, there's a story of dominant battle in that period. But I also want to stop and sort of generate some thought about what else the sailors were thinking about. There were soldiers on board ship, they were classed as marines, and they weren't usually allowed to go aloft or do anything that sailors tended to do. They were classed in their ranks just one step above a ship's boy. So you could be the most experienced soldier, extremely good at all your soldiering stuff, but you got dramatically less pay than an able seaman, and only marginally more than a ship's boy, an eight-year-old. So there was a kind of a status thing going on here. <laughs> you, it, it's worth stopping to try and understand it. Um, this is, this is, a, this is a, an image from a contemporary seamanship manual. Because they realised that there was a kind of a locked world that people needed to be 
to be let into. They needed to learn to speak the language of a sailor. Um, something like 300 different words you'd have to learn to work a ship. Um, these are just some of the... Well, every single piece of rope here is different, and every single piece of rope's got a different name, and every single piece of rope does something, does something different. There are some that move the yards in a horizontal plane, some that move them up and down, and there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight on this ship, and that's without royal masts or skysail masts or spritsail masts at the front or studding sails or anything else. You need to know the difference between a club hall and a box hall. You needed to know what knees were, what a futtock was. Sailors knew this, and soldiers didn't, and it was much more difficult to learn the art of a sailor. They all knew not, not only how to tie hundreds of different knots, but they knew what the point of each one was. Just very briefly, if you, if you haven't kind of thought about knots, it's worth doing. This is a short splice, so you've attached two ends of rope together, which is all very well, but it's lumpy in the middle. That means it doesn't run through a sheave. So if you're trying to run it through a pulley, it might get jammed. So a short splice is very good for things in certain situations, but if you want to join two bits of rope together so it maintains the same diameter all the time, you'd use something called a long splice. Very clever stuff. Those are just two examples. I mean, the common bowling that everyone knows, that's all very well, but you need to know kind of why it was used. It was used because you could break it easily. However much strain is put on a bowling, you can just pull it apart, which is not the same for most knots. But sailors, they didn't just know how to tie a bowling. They could tie it with either hand. In darkest night, they could tie it with their teeth. They could tie it whilst trying to hang on, hang on in, you know, in the middle of a gale. And they probably knew at least 50 knots. Every single one of them for a specific reason to be used at a specific time. Sailing ships are extremely complex in the way they work. This is a brilliant example. This sail is full of wind, that one is not. That sail is full of wind, this one is not. That sail's been completely spun around, the ship has been positioned so that that one is full of wind, but the wind is blowing backwards against this one. What that does is it stops the ship completely. It's like putting the handbrake on. But to maintain your position like that, they used to fight like this, required an awful lot of trimming the sails, a lot of jiggling around. It was all to do with balance. If you've got a sail at the back and none at the front, the ship will go around like that. If you balance it by a sail at the front, you'll tend to go in, in the same direction. So you can make ships move in relation to the wind very cleverly, but you had to be able to respond to orders and you had to know exactly what was going on. They could even move ship, ships with the tide. Drifting was an art. They could use ships with anchors. They could send off anchors in the distance, then haul themselves along. So there's a whole lot of skill going on here, which took years and years to learn. This is an example of the yards being cockbills. They're usually square, but look at this. They're all over the place. So I just wanted to demonstrate and to let you think about the complexity of a rig and the difficulty of understanding exactly what's going on and what it's capable of. Now, those last examples are of ships which are all working. This is a broken one. And they, they're, they're brilliant, these ships. They're very sort of organic, quite like a, um, uh, like a wooden pencil, right? If you get a wooden pencil, you break it in half, you can use it again. You just sharpen one end and off you go. It's brilliant. So warships are a bit like pencils <laughs> in that respect. They're organic. You can shift timber from one part of the ship to the other part of the ship to mend it. It's not like having a steel hull or an iron hull. HMS Warrior, iron hull, hole in it, you sink. <laughs> Nothing you can do about it. Timber's brilliant. You can patch holes in the hole with canvas. The pressure of the water will hold it in. You can use 
um, a, a, a topsail yard like this to mend a mainmast temporarily. You can kind of jiggy them all around. And sailors knew how to do it, and they knew how to do it in battle. They, weren't, they didn't kind of go off and mend themselves and then come back. They'd do it all under enemy fire. This is a classic example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. That should be, that should be a mizzen mast there, but what they've done is they've used a yard, a spare yard here, to make it into that, to allow them to carry on going. They've struck and they've taken down a lot of the top hamper here to make the ship safer on her journey home because she's so heavily damaged and probably carrying water. They were very proud of this seamanship ability and there were always a lot of competitions. Um, one example, HMS Temeraire and her crew decided to challenge the rest of the ships in the fleet to a race. What you had to do, they were at anchor and they were very bored. What they had to do was they had to unfurl all the sails and then furl them all again. They had to get all of the ship's boats out and back in again. Then they had to strike, which means completely take down, like this, the top masts and the t'gallant masts and all the associated rigging. And then you had to put them all the way back up again. Now, what the Temeraire crew did was they deliberately did it slowly. So they came last. Then they demanded a race and they did it properly and they won. And they won again and again and again and again. They won five times in a row. So extraordinary ability to work... But th this isn't just any navy, this is the Royal Navy, and they could do it under pressure. One of the things that happened after the Battle of Trafalgar, there was an immense storm. And the British carried on repairing their ships. And the one thing that, which is a constant throughout all of the French descriptions of the aftermath of the battle is that they were astonished at how the British sailors kept going under pressure. I'll just whizzy through a few of these. Uh, that's a, just a, a clever example of how you might mend a bro broken yard, it's like splinting a, a broken leg. So they've got actually these are capstan bars, these are the things which are used for, for raising the anchor and they've tied them together to hold that in place and that will then be able to hold, hold the pressure of, of wind for a while until you can actually replace it with a proper piece of timber. Now this is when I get a bit weird. The, uh, <laughs> this is to remind me to talk about helming because it has been compared to riding a bike or playing a violin. He has actually got a violin, it's the smallest violin in the world. <laughs> um, the point is, is that helming is really, really difficult. Um, you have to be able to respond to gusts of wind, you have to be able to respond to unpredictable waves coming along, you have to be able to cope with damaged rigging if you're, if you're helming a ship in battle. Uh, and it was one of the things that they could all do, they could all box the compass, they knew exactly what was going on. And it's a skill very much like these, you can't do it unless you know how to do it. And it takes a while to get the hang of it. You should see me trying to play the violin. Another really important skill is being able to identify ships on the horizon. So, if you think about it, you know, you're halfway up a mast and you see a ship on the horizon. But before they were within proper distance, sailors of the period could work out what nationality that ship was. They could estimate whether it was a good crew or not. They could see if she was damaged. If she was on a certain course, they could work out what kind of course they needed to sail to intercept her. All of those things are crucial. It's all to do with the kind of the art of, of, of reading another ship. It's why disguise was so important in battle in the 18th century at sea. So we've talked about the skill of sailors for a bit. We've talked about battles. But what I wanted to do was introduce a few other thoughts about how and why the, uh, the Navy was important. You see, out of all of those battles I've mentioned, we did pretty well. But we actually captured more enemy ships 
by fleet seizures, by capturing an enemy fleet in harbour than we ever did at sea. And we did it without a gun being fired, without a single British sailor being lost. Toulon in 1793. Right, this is just before we fight at the glorious 1st of June and capture six ships. Wow, six. We captured 22 ships of the line and 15 frigates at Toulon. Didn't fire a shot. We then let them have it all back, but that's beside the point. <laughs> there are other examples of this as well. So that was the French captured their fleet. Brilliant. They didn't have a Mediterranean fleet. We had the whole thing. It's like the French taking Portsmouth. In 1793, we took Toulon. 1796, we took a Dutch fleet in South Africa. We took nine ships of the line and six frigates. No shot being fired. Did it again at the Texel in 1799. Okay, we were pretty impressive in 1801 against the Danes at the Battle of Copenhagen, but in 1807 we captured their entire navy without a shot being fired. When Napoleon evacuated Portugal, he left behind a Russian fleet. Nine ships of the line, thank you very much, we'll have them. All of these fleet seizures all came about because of British naval presence nearby, and they all dramatically altered the war in a much more significant way than any of the battles about which I've spoken. Blockade. Now, blockade's a slightly tricky one, because blockading is very, very difficult to do. And a lot of the time, a lot of the battles I was talking about occurred because of British failures to blockade. But we were very good at it in certain situations. And that involved us having a fleet off the coast of an enemy port, and then stopping any traffic coming in, stopping the fleet coming in, stopping them getting any supplies, stopping them getting any men. That crippled the economy, it put their navy out of practice, so while we were sailing away at sea all the time in the middle of December in the Bay of Biscay, which is a filthy place to be, they were sitting in the harbour dying of disease. When they finally came out, they were unpracticed, they were ill, they were weak. We were strong. Blockade, very important. Now, a really important point here is the interaction between the navy and the army. Our army has always been tiny. 1813, the French army, 600,000 strong. Brits, no more than 45,000, sort of the largest. Usually, for the kind of the big foreign operations, 15 or 20,000. So what they did is they took sailors. And all of these operations, all of these amphibious operations, sailors boosted the army numbers. 74-gun ship and a crew of 600. And you've got 14 of them, that's a lot of men. The problem is that the sailors were fairly useless in certain situations. They were brilliant in some, but fairly useless in others. One of the problems was march discipline. So they land some sailors, this is Guadeloupe in 1794, and they say, right, we're going to go and attack a French fort at four o'clock in the morning. Brilliant. 300 sailors, off we go. They all march through the jungle. They get there at four, four o'clock in the morning. There are 30 sailors left. They're just gone. <laughs> Can't do it. Not interested. Thank you very much. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Formation discipline. They try and capture a French convoy in, a, in Spain in 1807. So they land a load of sailors and they drive the, the, the French garrison up to a nearby hill and then they all form up with, with some, some uh, members of the army around the base of this hill to stop the garrison coming back so they can capture the French fleet. Which is all very good, apart from the fact the sailors suddenly realise they're ashore. And they haven't been ashore for a while. <laughs> and one by one, they tootle off into town. Until the uh, British force is so weak, the French attack again and drive the British completely away. They, they, they kill a third of the force. So that was rubbish. Gunnery discipline, a very big difference between army gunnery and, and, and naval gunnery. 
Naval gunnery is all about firing as quickly as you can, again, 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 and again. Now, in sieges, it's all about accuracy, it's all about demolishing curtain walls and all that sort of stuff. So the British sailors, again, um, this is in Martinique, uh, early, uh, it was 1794. The British sailors build their own redoubt, they get some guns up, it's all very impressive, and they use all of their ammunition in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the army are very carefully kind of lining things up and taking it. So, uh, in some situations they were good and others not so good. Um, amphibious operations. This is, um, for many years, this was thought to be the, the landing at New York in 1776, but it's not. It's actually the landing, uh, the other way around. They thought it was the landing at Rhode Island, but it's actually the landing at New York. Look here at the flatboats, this is what I want you to look at. These are all rowed by sailors, they've got to get the army ashore. These were the landing craft of their day, specifically designed with a, almost like with a, with a, to allow these, um, these guns to roll on and roll off. Now without the sailors, these amphibious operations wouldn't have happened. And look how many of them there are. They didn't just have to get the soldiers ashore, they had to make sure they were ashore in formation. They had to make sure they could get ashore at the right pace without being um, outnumbered and defeated. They had to provide covering fire for the, um, the base of landing. This is the design of an 18th century flatboat. Um, so used very much in the um, War of American Independence and also used um, in the Seven Years' War, um, very important landings at Belle Isle, Quebec, Havana. But what the sailors were brilliant at ashore is haulage. They were very well trained at pulling things around. In all conjoint expeditions of the army and the navy, the landing and transportation of cannon is performed by the seamen, after which the artillery officers mount the guns and complete the batteries. Classic example of this is Corsica in 1794 again. So Corsica was very s defended by a very strong <coughs> fort, which was surrounded by cliffs 700 feet high. The sailors got ashore and they hauled guns up to the top of it, to the utter astonishment of the defenders. The mountains which overlooked this post were deemed by many to be inaccessible, and probably few but Englishmen would have attempted to place guns in such a situation. And they did it, and the sailors did it by strapping straps around uh, huge boulders, and then attaching the biggest pulleys they could to the boulders, sending a force up the mountain with the end of a rope, which they then walked down the mountain pulling, which hoisted a cannon up. Here they all are, landing their cannon from the ships. So it's really important to bear in mind this kind of logistical supporting skill of the sailors. That was how they did it. Now this is the, probably the most famous example of them doing this. This is called the Diamond Rock. It's off Martinique. It dominates the passage between Martinique and St Lucia. Martinique, of course, a very important French naval possession. So what the Brits did was they put a cannon on top. <laughs> and it was all done by British sailors. Um, and the sailors slept in holes in the rocks. Um, they also decided to make it an official English sloop of war. So it was called HMS Diamond Rock. <laughs> which I quite like. Uh, don't believe it? Well, there they are. That's them doing it. I mean, the first thing they had to do was obviously get some sailors up that cliff to then attach a rope to it which they could then have a, there you are, there's a boat down here holding onto a line which is held onto a cannon. They got four or five of these cannon up here, which meant that they could fire shots at every French ship that was going past. An extraordinary achievement. And a very important reminder that the British skill at haulage was something that dramatically affected 
wars. Um, this is the New Jersey Palisades. This is after we've attacked and invaded New York in 1776, before we launched the New Jersey campaign. Um, flatboats taking the army ashore, up the heights, and again, they haul all the cannon all the way up to the top, which were then taken by the <coughs> Americans at Trenton. But that's beside the case. Now, very important point here. Did the Royal Navy put Britain on the map? Yes, by making the maps is the obvious thing to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> without the Navy, there weren't any maps, quite frankly. Um, this is a great example. 1773, periods of peace. Periods of war, the Navy fought. Periods of peace, the Navy explored. That was the general natural cycle. So 1773, just as the American War of Independence is breaking out. Nelson here, young Nelson, um, clubbing a polar bear's death, um, which is something that might or might not have happened. Um, most scholars think that it didn't happen. It was invented by Nelson, which is something he was really good at doing. But it was a really good story. They were trying to find the Northwest Passage. There was some really important stuff going on. They didn't know about in the 1770s. They didn't know about Australia. You know, Cook hadn't been out there yet. They thought you could go right across North America through the inland waterways. They had no idea what was in the middle of Africa. So the Royal Navy's role in maps. This is a brilliant example of it. This was made, Dusky Bay in New Zealand, 1773, Cook's second expedition. Now they did a lot of, um, a lot of stuff, but they couldn't do it all. And this is great. <laughs> Nobody knows what. <laughs> <laughs> he basically throws his hands. Oh, I've had it with this map making business. <laughs> so one of the people who went on uh, on Cook's Cook's voyage was called George Vancouver, who then took up Cook's mantle after Cook was killed. So Vancouver went back in 1790, and he finished off the map. So it says here, uh, nobody knows what. And he finished off with somebody knows what. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are, the Brits making the maps, which made us understand what was going on. Now, this is a fairly random area of New Zealand. And, you know, you could say, well, militarily, what, what helped in knowing where Australia was? Well, OK. But this is really important. Um, I found this in, uh, last year in the National Archives. This is a map made of uh, Cartagena and Portobello. So we're in 1698, maybe 1697. War with France is looking likely because the Spanish king is mad and the French have got a good claim to the Spanish throne. Brits know that the Caribbean is very important, so what they did is they sent out a mission ostensibly to hunt pirates, but actually they were on a spying mission. And this is the... The person they sent out was Admiral Benbow, and this is the journal of his master, which is as detailed as any of Cook's maps at that time. Well, Cook was doing them later, but they like the initial sketches. What he's doing is he's going in to these places and saying, you know, which way are you leaning towards France, are you leaning towards Britain? And while he's there, he's sounding the harbours, he's taking notes on everything, he's explaining... Uh, where you can get fresh water. He's explaining where the swamps of crocodiles are in case the army land. He's um, describing what the land looks like from this, the, this perspective of the sea. Describing it, comparing it to, to British coast, saying it's very much like the Bill of Portland or it's very much like Beachy Head. It's basically a manual of for, for 
uh, imperial expansion. It's a notebook for imperial expansion. And it allowed them to go back and to wage warfare in the West Indies, which was not in a way that was not possible before. They measured the distance from uh, the British base from Jamaica. They, they measured the, the distance around the island. They worked out how long it would take to march around the island or from point A to point B. They navigated channels, they did all sorts of stuff, and it meant that when war kicked off in the Caribbean, the Brits had some decent maps, and that was absolutely essential. Right, I've talked about British skill and British competence, and I've talked about battles and blockading and fleet seizures. But just briefly think about the Tower of London, because it's actually really important, and it raises an issue which I've been kind of gradually developing over, over the last few years. This is Arthur Herbert, the Earl of Torrington, and he was arrested and he was put in the tower after the Battle of Beachy Head in 1690. Um, other famous naval people, Samuel Pepys, um, he was put in the tower, um, believed for his traitorous activities in the 1670s, and of course he was Secretary to the Navy. But Herbert's really interesting and important. He had just tried to fight the French at the Battle of Beachy Head in the 1690s. He had a much smaller fleet. He did his best, but he was basically driven from the field of battle, therefore leaving the British Channel in complete French control in the 1690s. The French could have landed an army if they wanted to. It's an example of British naval failure. There are loads. And if you think about it, and if you have the time to argue it, you can actually argue that British naval failure was equally as important, if not more important, to putting Britain on the map, to shaping the, the world as we know it, as British naval success. I haven't got a lot of time to go into this, but think about it this way. 1688, the Glorious Revolution. William lands, Britain becomes Protestant. The rest of the problems we've had before and, and since was to do with, with, with religion. A Protestant Britain is, Britain is crucial for the development of the history that followed. That happened because of British naval failure. William landed a huge invasion fleet of 200 ships in Tor Bay. Where was, our, where was our navy? British naval failure that dramatically changed things. 1693, the Smyrna convoy disaster. That had an absolutely crucial effect in establishing the Bank of England and the long-term system of debt that Saul was talking about, which allowed us to fund everything. The navy failed to protect the convoy, and the merchants lost so much money they kicked up a stink, and it basically led to the restructuring of British finance. 1690, the Battle of Beachy Head, the French could have invaded, but they didn't. 1796 is a very similar example, the French could have invaded, but they didn't. 1779, very similar example, the French and Spanish could have invaded, but they didn't because of the weather. Every single one of those is because of the weather or because of French and Spanish incompetence. The Navy was simply not there to protect our shores. My favourite one of all is 1798, the Battle of the Nile, about which I've spoken when we destroyed Napoleon's fleet. But we had a chance to capture the whole French fleet in the middle of the Mediterranean before they'd even landed, which means we would have captured Napoleon, we would have captured all of his major generals, and that would have happened in 1798. The war went on for 17 years longer. Battle of the Chesapeake in 1781 was the final straw in the American Revolution. But we'd also lost a major battle in 1778 at the Battle of Ushant. If we'd have won that battle, it would have dramatically changed the strategic situation in the American War. Also, our inability to blockade the American coast, 1773 to 1775, naval failure allowed the Americans to arm, made their revolution possible. 
So you've got some pretty serious things here. So you've got the American Revolution, you've got the Glorious Revolution, and other examples I've mentioned of the Napoleonic Wars. All have very visible and tangible links to the shaping of the modern world, and all caused by British naval failure. So I'm going to finish now, and hopefully what I've done is through cunning logic, I've got it all sewn up. So either, either you think the British were extremely good and very powerful and the sailors were very skilled and they won battle after battle after battle and none of the wars would have uh, worked out the way they did if it wasn't for British naval success. Or you say that the Navy was so incompetent <laughs> and the examples of success were just very kind of like bright sunbursts in a cloudy sky but actually it was British naval failure. They were so bad that the modern world has turned out the way it's did because the Navy was bad. But either way, it was the Navy's fault. <laughs> right? And so I'm going to leave it there. So I think that it was the Navy, whether they were good or whether they were bad, that shaped the modern world and put Britain on the map. Thank you. ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. That was Sam Willis. Sam is the author of several works of naval history, most recently, The Glorious First of June, Fleet Battle in the Reign of Terror, which was published last year by Quirkus. Sam has also written an article for our August edition, where he selects the ten naval battles that had the biggest impact on British history. That edition is on sale now in print, on Kindle and on the iPad. And that lecture you were listening to was organised in association with historic royal palaces who run the Tower of London, Hampton Court, Kew Palace and other royal venues. You can find out more about them at hrp.org.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard, then you might be interested in our next lecture, which is taking place at the British Academy. On the 20th of September, you can hear historians Mark Morris and Tracy Borman give talks about the events of 1066 and you'll also get the chance to meet both Mark and Tracy and purchase signed copies of their books. To find out more about that event, please visit historyextra.com forward slash lectures, and magazine subscribers will get a discount on tickets. Well, that's about it for this week's episode. 
We shall be back next week when we'll be discussing American history and Vichy France's role in the Holocaust. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. The History Extra weekly podcast is produced by Dave Gibson.